Well, how do we live as lords of creation? At first glance, it's very simple. We've been created for good works. Come with me to that Ephesians passage, Ephesians 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. Verse 5, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our... made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show his grace. For verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 20, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What has God created you for in your resurrected state? Good works. Which good works? The good works that he's prepared. Because for every day and every moment of every day, God has a good work for you to be doing and he has resurrected you, he has given you, regenerated you, given you new birth, raised you up in order that you may do these good works. That's what it is. Quick Bible flippers, you can go across to Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. And you'll see there about Jesus ransoming a people for himself. And the reason he ransoms the people for himself in Titus 2 is so that he may have his own people who are these, who gave himself for us to redeem us, 2.14 it is, to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We've been born again to do good. We've been regenerated to do good works. We have been resurrected to live righteously, to live God's way, not our own. That is what we've been made for, what we've been remade for. And so Jesus teaches his disciples, seek first the kingdom and righteousness and all other things will be added to you. Do not be like the pagans who run after what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, as if that is what their life is all about, what they eat, what they drink, what they wear. You are not like that. You are to be seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness first, and clothes and food will fill in their right place. You read that and you think, well, no one actually lives like that, but then what do they watch on television these nights? Cooking shows. Endless shows about what you eat and what you drink and how you can make it better and hour after hour of television. We have this wonderful medium by which we can explain to people how they can better prepare pre-sewerage material. <laughs> For that ultimately is what it is. You go into any shop and any newsagent and you look at all the, the magazines that are there and what are the magazines about? What you eat, what you drink, what you wear. Fashion play after fashion show after fashion show as we create new ways in which to torture the human body, especially the females. Those incredible shoes designed to ruin your back and your legs. All for the sake... Oh, I better not say it. Someone might have them on. So <laughs> the absurdity that life is what... My life is about how I dress myself. 
My life is about enjoying the good life, as they call it. The kind of quality of meat I may drink, eat. The kind of drink, <laughs> the kind of, the kind of vegetable that can be. It's an absurdity. Have you been to those parties where they're discussing wine and the different kinds of wines and the different kinds of years the grapes are? They're going to send it down the sewers in half an hour. <laughs> That's what their body thinks of it, but their mind thinks something else. Because they have nothing more to live for than the material existence of this world. Philosophical materialism creates economic materialism. Everybody pokes fun at economic materialism, but if you're a philosophical materialist, what else is there but economic materialism? Your life is your possessions, your sensory pleasures. There is nothing else, ultimately, but your sensory pleasures. But we know there is more. We know there is his kingdom. We know there is righteousness. Seek those. If you've been raised with Christ... Colossians chapter 3, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind to the things that are above, not to the things of this earth. But what about ruling over creation? Well, what about employment? What about culture? What about music? What about art? What about politics or economics and science? What, what role do any of this have now for Christians? Are we so heavenly minded to be of no earthly use? No, the resurrection is about making us lords of creation. We are not those who go off into monasteries and nunneries and meditate. We are not those who... That's a false understanding of Christianity, if it's at all an understanding of Christianity. We must recognise two things. The place of the creation in the purposes of God and our place in creation in the purposes of God. So firstly then, the place of creation. It's made by God. It's good. It's fallen because of our sinfulness and God's partial judgment upon it. It's going to be destroyed and remade, we're told in 2 Peter 3. It's now groaning in travail. It's, it's not the, this is not the best of all possible worlds, as the philosophers used to like to talk about. This is the world of judgment and suffering and travail. But it won't be changed until it's destroyed and a new heaven and a new earth is put in its place. Created in the resurrection age, which Jesus, when Jesus returns. And so now humans will continually face suffering and sickness and death and difficulty and hostility in this environment as we wait for our salvation, as we await for the new age and the judgment day. So the world we're in is a fallen world. It will always be difficult. You will never beat the weeds. Ultimately, the maggots will always win. They are the creatures who survive the fittest. The cockroaches will win. Because we live in a world that is distorted by human sinfulness. Death reigns in this world. So secondly, we must recognise our place in creation. For we're still part of it. And so we're still creatures. So Christians will suffer. Christians will sicken. That is the nature of the world we're in. Our bodies are still in this fallen world. And yet we are in God's image. All, all humans are, not just Christians. We're still in God's image while we still live in bodies that are corrupted. Corrupted by sin and therefore 
we exploit creation instead of looking after it. Corrupted by sin and therefore we idolise creation instead of the creator. Corrupted by sin and therefore we reject creation and go off and live in countercultural nimble land. But those that are remade by the Spirit, we will see the true perspective and live in it rightly. And there are important differences. For we now know what we're doing and why we're doing it, and we evaluate it quite differently. We will live to make something of a difference in this world. It looks like this, the model that we already have, without reference to our lives as Christians. But then at the addition of Christianity to the world, as over time Christians make their impact in this world, it's only a little impact. But it is a little impact. As we wait for the end of the world, as we live post-Jesus, we are changing the world for the better. Not changing it so that it becomes heavenly. We're never going to get to heaven by the work of our hands. We get there by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, not by the work of our hands. But we're not still living in a fallen world unaffected by Christianity. We're living in an improved fallen world because we've been born again to sit with Christ in the heavenly realms so as to start living rightly in this world, to start acting rightly in this world, to start changing this world as we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't seek God's kingdom and his righteousness and live accepting unrighteousness in the society around about you. Your moral value system has now changed. And that change has changed the world. What are we here to do? How do we evaluate what we're to do? Well, let me show you some case studies. I think I've got A to G. What's that? Seven case studies that I will whip through for a few minutes. Good luck if you're a note taker. Then we'll come back to the conclusion. Here's some case studies on how it works. Firstly, take the subject of work. We will continue to work in subduing and filling and caring for and using the world. We continue to work like the slaves in Babylon. The world might be a fallen world, like Babylon was the wrong place to be, but we work for its betterment. We continue to work without using work to build the Tower of Babel. We don't think we're going to get to heaven by our hard work. We don't think we're going to solve... Make Poverty History is a wonderful motto, but it's a complete nonsense. It is impossible to make poverty history in this world. Does that mean we don't try and overcome poverty? No, we should not try and overcome poverty. But we have realism in our attempts. We know that you can't do it in the end. It's like saying, let's get rid of death. It'll be lovely. It's just not going to happen. We continue to work for the good of others. Honestly loving others. See, the thief is no longer to steal, but he's to work with honest hands in order to give to those in need. It's a wonderful verse. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. And the Christian thief stops stealing, starts working honestly, makes money and gives. A motivation for Christian work is generosity. 
Check that out in all the jobs you apply for as to whether they want you to be generous as part of the work program. Or those who are training. Generosity is our reason for work. We also, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, work to feed our faces and not be a burden on other people. So Christians have a work ethic that they've introduced into the world. We continue to work in quietness taking our responsibilities and diligently working in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We work to fulfil our responsibilities to our family in 1 Timothy chapter 5, as well as to others. We continue to work in a way that reflects our Creator, that is by taking a day off and by insisting that our fellow workers take days off, rather than that we work the seven days a week, and that we do it as a community, all taking the same day off, so that we can enjoy life together. We are opposed to materialism and covetousness. And because we're opposed to materialism and covetousness, we're opposed to gambling in any or any of its forms. The problem with gambling is not taking a risk. Well, having a cup of coffee tonight's having a risk. The problem with gambling is covetousness. I want your money. You want my money. The fact that we both want each other's money doesn't make it right. Two, right, two wrongs don't make a right. Greed is of the essence of it. And gambling is one of the great wickednesses of the Australian society. The gambling industry owns our government and have totally corrupted the democratic processes of Australia. Totally. But hey, everybody gambles, don't they? Only wowsers don't gamble and Christians. I mean, gambling, apart from being stupid because you can't win, the house always wins, apart from the stupidity of it, gambling rots the system. And of course, those who run gambling processes know it. That is, the casino sends buses out on pension day to the poorest parts of Sydney to offer free trips to pensioners into the casino. How much more immoral can an organisation be? New South Wales has the highest rate of poker machines of any state in the world. And where are most of the poker machines? In the poorest suburbs of Sydney. That's where they are. How immoral can a system be? And who speaks against gambling but Christians? And now that Christians have less influence in society, what has replaced Christians and their influence in society? Casinos and gambling. We didn't have it until the 1980s. We were free of it. But no. We do not find our significance and meaning in our work. We're not defined by our job. I'm a doctor, I'm a dentist, I'm a lawyer. No, I'm a human. Don't treat me as a doctor, a dentist or a lawyer. Treat me as a human. That's who I am. My identity is not found in my work. My identity is found in God. For I'm a creature of God, redeemed and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I am. I, I do a lot of work amongst alcoholics and AA is a wonderful organisation but it's terrible because every time they get up and they have to say, hello, my name's Philip, I'm an alcoholic. Well, you may be, but you know, the Christian can say, hello, my name's Philip and I'm a redeemed person. I'm a saved person. I'm a rescued person. There's a very big difference because every time you get up and say you're an alcoholic, you're admitting the defeat. Sure, I'm a sinner. Sure, I could be an alcoholic. I tend not to be, but I could be. But it's much more important that I'm a recovering alcoholic than that I'm an alcoholic. 
It's much more important that I am one who has been rescued out of the, out of the addiction than I continue to repeat that I am in the addiction. We work just to provide for each other and to provide for the good of society so as to eat and dress and care for ourselves and care for our family and care for others. And we don't judge people on the social scale of what their job is. Oh, my, my, my son, he's, he's, he's a judge, you know. My son, he's, he's the head of an IT company. Well, my son's only a bricky's labourer. My son's only a plumber. Plumbers are much richer than me. Anyway, uh, I called a plumber the other day. Yeah, it was just like printing money. It was a fascinating problem. But which is more important in our society, in our world today? Which, which does the world need? Plumbers or doctors? Plumbers are what we need. The health of the world is established by clean water and good sewerage systems. Heart specialists don't save any but rich old fat men like me. But the multitudes of the community are saved by plumbers. But we think, oh, he's only a plumber. Christians don't think like that about work. Christians say, what can I do for the good of other people? And if it's for the good of other people to be a plumber, I'll be a plumber. Because that's what's valuable. Rather than, oh, gee, a plumber, I wouldn't get a university degree. I mean, I'd only be a tradesman. I mean, I'd, I'd have to live in the Shire. <laughs> Creation works, and we are to work creation. But it's limited because of the fall and creation's future. It's only in the resurrection at the end will things be put right. But once you grasp the resurrection, the creation, the judgment to come, your attitude to work will be different to the world around about you and to other people's. Take science. It's out of creation and the resurrection of creation that science was created in the Western civilization. The history of science comes out of the Reformation and, of all people, the Puritans of the 16th and 17th century. Because it was when we came to accept creation from the Bible that the world becomes a real world worthy of investigation. You don't do Hindu science. You don't do Buddhist science. Because Hinduism and Buddhism don't actually believe in the world. The world is of no interest. It's the place you're trying to escape from. We believe in a real world with real people who matter. And we are the rulers of that world responsible to look after it. And the world is created as a habitable place by God and has certain regularities built into it that you can measure, that you can experiment. And the world will not provide for you the ultimate answers because the ultimate answers live outside of the world. But it nevertheless is worth studying and because we have the ultimate answers can make sense of it. The resurrection will lead us to a world that is not able to be made now into paradise, but by God will be. And so we're not by our scientific endeavours ever going to overcome the physiological problems of this world. But on the other hand, we will come to be able to control and to subdue and to care for the world better by our scientific inquiries. But science, because it doesn't have an ultimate reality by itself, means that it has and needs to have ethical limits because without ethics coming from outside of science, 
scientists will act in ungodly fashions. Now, I, I visited just outside of Strasbourg a, a concentration camp. It, it's a harrowing experience visiting concentration camps. I, I visited First World War sites and they brought me to tears. The concentration camp wanted me to, made me want to vomit. It, was just, it is just so harrowing. It's only a small concentration camp, one of the many of the Nazi era, and one of the minor ones really, but it was the one where they did medical it, science experiments on humans, mainly Jewish, but other people as well. And there were the operating theatres, there were the scientific equipment, there was where they pumped people with all kinds of poisons to measure how quickly they would die and with what pain they would die. And, with, and then there, were the, there was the, the incinerator that they disposed of the bodies that they had just destroyed by the diseases that they had given to these people. And on the little placards that explained it, they kept on saying about, you know, these were pseudo-scientific inquiries. There was nothing pseudo about them. They were thoroughly scientific inquiries. They were conducted by professors of the local universities with the highest academic credentials and following the most careful scientific procedures. Science without ethics is monstrous. Absolutely monstrous. It's, it's a wickedness beyond belief. It's awful, really. And yet, we have it here. Because Adolf Hitler's scientists, they discovered that asbestos creates cancer. And so Adolf Hitler removed asbestos from buildings because he didn't want people to have cancer. And Hitler's scientists discovered that smoking causes lung cancer. And so they brought in laws against selling tobacco. Even Adolf Hitler knew <laughs> that it was wrong. But our Western capitalist money makers, now that we can't sell cigarettes to Westerners, we're selling it to the third world and making our profits there. The science is perfectly clear. The ethics is what the problem is. Science without ethics is awful. But there is the problem, you see. The human life is beyond the limits of scientific experimentation and must be beyond the limits of scientific experimentation, though under Peter Singer's philosophy, there's no reason for it to be beyond the, the realms of scientific investigation, provided the human is no longer sentient then you could experiment on the bodies. Then you can experiment on fetal life. For it doesn't matter. They could be useful in our discovery of other things for the benefits of those of us who are still sentient. There is the terrible arrogance of that book, The Brief History of Time, which is the best-selling, least-read book in history. Where right at the end of it, he talks about finding this last piece of information and then ultimately we will know the mind of God, then we will become God effectively. It has never been discovered and it won't be. Uh, the scientific method comes out of Christianity because we believe in an ordered creation that is worthy of study because of the resurrection, because of the creation. The physical world matters to us. 
but in sinfulness the scientific inquiry can be distorted into all manner of evil, like atomic warfare. You've got to bring science under the authority of an ethical system outside of science, and utilitarianism cannot do it, because science is always usable. Utility is massive in science. And as long as I can say, look, if I was allowed to experiment on you, I could save a lot of people from the terrible diseases they're suffering. One person's small inconvenience for millions of people's benefit. You don't mind, do you? It's wickedness, my friends. Or ecology. To the world is a wonderful place that God has created for our pleasure and for our enjoyment. But the world is disordered because of our sinfulness. The whole world, not just humans, are disordered because of sin. And the world cannot be put straight by our efforts. Humans are the ones that are responsible for maintaining it, and humans are more important than any other creature. Now, with those six propositions that I've just set out there, you can start working on ecology. Once you change those propositions, your results have, will be completely different. Once you don't see humans are more important than other creatures, then you'll change the choices you make. Once you see that humans are not the ones responsible, well, you won't care what damage you're doing to the environment. Once you see that the world can't be put to straights, then you won't try and put the world to straights. You'll understand that as you fix this problem, you'll create that problem, and as you fix that one, you'll create another one. That We're juggling all the time to make things as best as we can, but we cannot ultimately win. The Christian understanding of ecology comes out of our understanding of the world and our responsibility, created in God's image to rule the world, our responsibility to care for the world, because the world matters, because God resurrected the body, not just the soul. And the body matters, point D I'm up to. Uh, it's the work of the demons, we're told, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, to deny physical pleasures, eating and drinking and marriage and sex. And marriage is to be honoured by all, we're told in Hebrews chapter 13. No one has to marry. You can be single for the cause of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 7. But... There's nothing wrong with sex within the marriage bind. There's everything good about it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, the couples are told to have sex and have it frequently and not to deny each other, not to deny the woman's need, not to deny the man's need. Paul, that famous old chauvinist who didn't understand women at all, talks about the fact that women have sexual needs that their husbands should satisfy. Uh, you know, if you read feminist literature, you'll get the impression that someone discovered that around 1960 in North America. But actually, it's in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because the body is a good thing and a lovely thing. Indeed, Proverbs 20 says, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their grey hair. I'm trying. <laughs> But by your worry, you cannot add anything to your life. There's no point worrying about your body, for true beauty is found within, not in your body. I mean, God has it all under control. Every hair on your head is counted. I'm making it easier for God these days. 
it's all there. He knows. If he wanted you to be taller, you would be taller. If he wanted you to be shorter, you'd be shorter. If he wanted you to have blue eyes, you'd have them. If he wanted you to have green eyes, he'd have them. If he wanted you to look as handsome as me, that's not possible. (laughs) God will make whatever it is you want, he wants you to be. Learn to be content with your body. The whole body image tyranny comes out of worldliness. Once you grasp that God has made me, and I am the perfect example of Philip Jensen. I was tempted there to say something more like humanity or masculinity, but I didn't. I stuck to the truth. I'm the perfect example of Philip Jensen. That's who I am. And God made me to be as I am. I don't need to spend all this time and money in front of the mirror to try and make me something other than I am. Because that's not where beauty lies anyway. It lies within the heart. It lies within the person. It can be seen in the eyes of old people, but it can't be seen in the physicality of the body. That's not where beauty is to be found. The beauty myth is a great myth that so many of my sisters in particular suffer acutely. Be free, my sisters. The beauty that you have at 18 is as good as it's ever going to get. It's just a downhill slide from there (laughs) to the coffin. Some of you have already started over the hill, but not yet far away. But the beauty that is within can increase and grow for the rest of your lives. You can always be more beautiful every day internally, spiritually, personally, that can go, that can grow and it doesn't cost you any money. The body, you see, it changes. The very nature of how you think about yourself, your body matters, but it matters with a certain perspective and you accept the reality of sickness and of death. At this point, just to make it certainly clear, I think many of the Pentecostal charismatic churches fail dismally because they do not accept the reality of sickness and death. I didn't say all, I said many, but many do. For they will not take the Bible seriously about the nature of our death in this world and the sickness that leads to death. No one dies of old age. Old age is not something you, you die of sickness in old age. I like explaining this to young people because I'm getting that way. That you mustn't kill me off because I'm old. It's a sickness in old age that will kill me, not old age itself. It doesn't kill me. There's nothing about old age. Old age is old age and it increases the number of sickness. Well, what other things? Wealth, poverty is bad. Because God has created a rich world for us to enjoy. Wealth is good, but generosity is better. And the reason for wealth is generosity. To care for the needy is good. So the love of money is evil. Money is not evil, but the love of money is terribly evil. Why are you at university? Is it not the love of money? 
why else do you go? Unless, of course, you're one of the noble few who've got an arts degree. <laughs> but for the rest, what is it about? If it's not what your parents want, a safe, secure economic outcome for you, it's money. The average graduate earns four times as much money by the time they retire than the person who's not the graduate. Why do you parents are so keen for you to go to university? For the education? Well, that's a laugh. Last time somebody got educated at university, I can't remember. <laughs> really. Education is just a byproduct that some people pick up on the way to their careers. No longer do they have open days at universities, they have careers days. That tells you what the university's done. It's sold out. Years ago, it sold out. It sells careers to people. It's about money-making. The love of money is evil. What about education? Well, education is the role of parents. It should be universal. Literacy is good for all. It has to do, though, with arrogance because knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. It's limited by God because God does not reveal to us everything that we can know. And the making of books is endless and study is a weariness of the flesh. What about government? Well, the purpose of government is justice. It's appointed by God. It's to be submitted to by all. It should be prayed for that we may have peace. One of the worst things to have is no government and the next bad thing to have is civil war. We need government, we need to keep praying for government, we need to maintain our government. We need to be cynical about it though because power is always corrupted by humans and put humans in power, then they do evil things. And no government will ever bring in the kingdom of God. So there's no point voting for Mr Rudd or for Mr Abbott thinking they're going to bring in the kingdom of God. They're not. So there's a whole range of government things. In every area of life, you see, the Christian worldview changes the way you think about the world. Conclusion. So, does Christianity make a difference to this world? Yes. An enormous difference, but not much. It's like our illustration, if we go again. You see, there it is, there's the world we live in, but look what Christianity has done. Next one. There you go, that's what we've done. Yes, we've made a difference, but not an enormous difference. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a matter of, of uh, perspective, isn't it? Is climbing Mount Everest a big high climb? Yes, but not if you're standing on the moon. You know, it's, it's a long way above sea level, but it's not very far to the moon. Well, there are great improvements have come because of Christianity, but not reaching heaven. You see, as a result of Christianity, we've created hospitals, we've created nursing, we've created really the medical fraternity as we know it. The ancient world didn't have hospitals. They only had medical care for soldiers, and a soldier, as soon as they thought, wasn't actually going to survive, they left him beside the road to die. It was Christians who picked them up and nursed them back to health and created the whole system of caring for people because they're people, not because they're units of production which is how the world looks upon people. 
The Christians are the people who looked after the sick and the, and the weak and cared for the poor and created the whole sense of charity, which we take for granted in the Western world, which is not there in other cultures as it is in Christianized cultures. It's Christians who invented the Red Cross. It was a Calvinist, actually, a Calvinist evangelist who invented it. When he saw the Crimean War and the suffering that was there, he created the Red Cross. And have you ever noticed the Geneva Conventions come from Geneva, the city of Calvin? Because the Geneva Conventions and that whole concept of justice in war came out of Christian thinking. The idea of universal education came from Christians. You know, there's a moment of recent discussions that the churches are trying to invade education in New South Wales. It's complete nonsense. For the first hundred years of New South Wales, it was the churches who ran education. It wasn't until the late 19th century that the government got involved in education because Christians insisted that all children should be educated. Universal education comes from Christianity. We, the churches, created the education systems of New South Wales and Australia. We created social welfare services, widows' pensions, orphanages. We're the people who have got rid of leprosy in the world as we're the ones who were the only people willing to hang around with the lepers, find out the cause of leprosy, and bring treatment to lepers around the world. We're the people who created universities. All the ancient universities that, as we function and know of a university, have come out of Christianity. We're the people who created justice as a basic principle for government. King Alfred, who created the British justice system back in the, the, uh, back in the medieval period, King Alfred one of the few educated kings of the ancient, uh, the medieval period, opened his Bible, opened Deuteronomy, and worked out the justice system, which is still foundation and fundamental to the British system of justice that we live under this day. Right, the religious toleration, the separation of church and state, which is so big in America, because it was the Puritans who founded America and founded that whole system of separating the two. It was Christians that stopped infanticide. It was Christians that stopped the ancient practice of abortion. It was Christians who, when they went to India, stopped the practice of suti, where the, the widows were put on the funeral pyre of their husbands so that we didn't have to deal with widows in their poverty. It was Christians who stopped that. It was Christians who stopped the killing of the old and the frail. It was Christians who stopped the terrible African slave trading of the 18th century. These battles aren't over. These battles continue in China, in India today, because, especially in China, the one-child policy, in India, because of the lack of respect for human life, abortions are carried out on sex lines so that there are huge disproportions now in the population between the number of males and the number of females because with one child we want a male and so if it's a female uh, that has been conceived, she is aborted. So wonderful is the right for abortion for the sake of women. It's Christians who have opposed these things. It was Christians and only Christians who stood up for the rights of Aborigines. It was the atheists of the 19th century who tried to exterminate the, the, the Aborigines of Australia because of the whole eugenics that, flo that flowed out of their understanding of, a misunderstanding, I believe, of Darwin's whole concepts. But it was Christian missionaries who stood between the soldiers, put their lives at risk between the soldiers and the Aborigines to protect Aborigines on the grounds that they too were in the image of God. They too have a right to life. Do Christians make a difference? Yes. 
We're the ones who constantly stop euthanasia. We're the ones who have stopped a prostitution. We oppose it and continue to oppose it. The government legislates it. That will get rid of corruption. We've just had a trial in Sydney of this woman who's now been sent to prison, I'm glad to say, because she had sex slaves which she had brought into Australia, women that she'd promised to give them uh, education, brought them in as students, but then forced them to work in her brothel in the very nice northern suburbs suburbs. And this kind of prostitution is available and well going in Australia. The slave trades of prostitutes is alive and well in Australia because Christians have no longer been able to have the influence over government that they had in previous days when it was made as illegal as it was. You think of the countries dominated by a Bible culture and you will think of the countries that everybody tries to migrate into. Britain, United States of America, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the cultures that have been built on Christianity, the Christianity of the Bible, are the cultures that people feel safe and secure in. Does Christianity make a difference? A huge difference. But not really very much. <laughs> because we still live in a fallen world. <laughs> and even in the name of Christ, terrible things have been done. <laughs> which is even worse, isn't it? <laughs> Bad things can be done in the name of Christ. And because this world is the world of death and immorality and human sinfulness, and it's only when the Lord Jesus returns and the new heavens and a new earth is created and we are physically resurrected to the judgment that lies ahead will we see the world as God would want it finally. So we live now spiritually resurrected, physically awaiting his return. But that means we, that doesn't mean we don't do anything. That means we now live in this world differently, with purpose and meaning and values and attitudes and care and responsibility, such as we were created for, even though we are ineffective in finally accomplishing it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death, for our sin that we can be forgiven, for his resurrection that gives us new life. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would use the new life that he has given us for the purpose to which you have given it, that we might be zealous for good works, that we might do those good works that you have prepared for us to walk in, that we might live as your people in this world in truth and in righteousness, in holiness and in justice, caring for the needs of others, loving them and sharing with them of the good things that you have given to us. So make us, Father, as your people, remake us as your people, that we might live in any and every area of our lives as those who bring glory to you and real benefit to our neighbours. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.